0: Welcome to Mintel's Little Conversation, real conversations with actionable insights into what consumers want and why. My name is Andrew McDougall, and I'm Director of Beauty and Personal Care Research at Mintel, and I'm excited to bring you our latest installment chatting with more of our lovely experts. Today, we're going to be taking a look at affordable living in a cost of living crisis, uh, with a bit of a beauty angle as well, as it's a subject very close to my heart, um, as well as being a specialty of at least one of my guests today. Uh, I'm delighted to be joined uh, by two experts in this area uh, looking at beauty, but also looking at consumer insights and retail as well. Uh, first up, my, my great colleague and podcast veteran, Samantha Dover, who is Category Director of Beauty and Personal Care at Mintel as well. Uh, welcome to the pod, Sam. Hello. And we also have another podcast veteran uh, and a media veteran at Mintel as well, our Category Director for Retail Insights in Nick Carroll joining us today too. Uh, so welcome to you, Nick, as well. Hi, Andrew. Thanks for having me. Now, a bit of preamble just to begin with to sort of set the scene. It's maybe a little bit negative, but we will go into uh, a much more lively conversation going forward. Um, Just that one of looking at the cost of living crisis and how it's affecting our spending habits. Um, Not particularly surprising news. Um, We're seeing it hit us uh, not just in shops, uh, but we have surging gas prices as well as our food shops. Inflation rates are at an all time high, Um, although those are constantly changing. We're constantly taking stock of our expenditure, uh, being more prudent when it comes to money right now in general, Um, not just in the UK, but in a lot of uh, Western society in general. Um, Also, according to our data, more than half of 20-something women have reduced their skincare and cosmetics regimen in the last year as well in response to those increased financial demands um, on daily essentials. So we're seeing consumer behavior change from a beauty perspective. But the first question I want to ask the two of you really to bring both of you in is what changes in behavior do we expect to see at moments like this?
1: So I can jump in first from a beauty perspective. So if we look back to previous downturns or income squeezes, what we tend to see is that beauty actually performs really well. Um, Consumers definitely turn to the category to kind of treat themselves um, to some of those affordable luxuries that we hear a lot about. So we hear a lot about the lipstick effect, and that definitely tends to take hold during times like now um but on the other end of the scale we tend in the past we've always seen that personal care has performed less well so people kind of tend to be a bit more savvy a bit more value-led when they're shopping for those kind of everyday items so things like soap bath and shower products even hair care those kind of categories are the ones that don't necessarily benefit as much from that lipstick effect that comes through um, and then from a, in terms of a brand perspective, actually, we, there's a kind of thought that, you know, during a difficult time that some of those higher end brands might struggle. But actually, what we tend to see is that prestige does very well. Um, again, coming back to that idea that people are treating themselves. Um, and we've got some really interesting research in our most recent women's hair care report that showed that women who buy prestige hair care are significantly less likely than other consumers to trade down to lower price brands to save money on hair care at the minute.
2: Yeah, and I think from a broader sort of consumer behavior point of view, all of that rings true as well. We know that value is top of the agenda, but we also know that consumers are not willing to sacrifice on quality. They also still want convenience. So many consumers are still juggling those elements. You know, they want to save where they can, but they also want to make their life easier as well. And I think the point you made around there in terms of quality is really important. Our latest sort of uh, British house... T- Hold uh, tracker shows that actually, when faced with a choice between changing a product, be that in terms of its ingredients or the pack size, or um, or uh, upping the price and keeping everything the same, while well, around a fifth would be happy with the changes made to either the pack size or the ingredients for a lower price. A third would rather the price simply goes up in terms of BPC products, and that's really interesting. It tells you that you know for those of value-led brands that are going to be see some trading down um, during this period. It's not just good enough to be the cheapest on the shelf. That'll get you traction and trade on a one-term basis. But um, if the quality is not there and if you can't exceed those expectations, and that's how you build that longer-term trade, it will be short and fleeting that trade down, and it's not going to build that longer-term behavior. That's going to be really important for those value-led brands to, um, to build loyalty uh, during this period that's going to last them as uh, finances recover.
0: I think it's really fascinating what the what the, both of you said there, actually, as well, because it's not as simple as, right, and looking to cut back all those financial constraints now. So I automatically remove luxuries. And I know, Sam, you uttered the um, now famous phrase, lipstick effect, which we've heard many times during any sort of financial turn, uh, downturn. Uh, but I think it's fascinating to think of that idea of not, especially in beauty, I think there's probably other luxury goods um, markets uh, and other consumer markets as well, where Actually, you know what, consumers aren't going to want to sacrifice on quality. So are we going to see this influx of consumers wanting affordable without sacrificing quality? And from the sounds of it, yes. So how do brands meet those demands or how do we show value in those moments to make sure the consumers are buying with us?
1: Yeah, I mean, definitely. So, yes, you just mentioned it, you know, quality is so important. One of the things that we've seen that's come through, and I think it's interesting when we start to think about quality is, you know, that association with price and what consumers perceive as being good quality. And that's where there's a really interesting kind of shift at the minute happening within beauty that we're seeing consumers really embrace the idea of dupes. And um, so copycat products of more expensive products and also the mastige market has kind of risen since the last um economic downturn so that kind of price point where it sits not quite at the luxury or premium end of the market but not quite mass is uh, and we've got a lot more brands operating in that space and what that kind of demand for both of those areas really speaks to is this idea that consumers want value for money and so there's that kind of a little bit of space to either trade up um, and If you normally buy mass market brands or you can kind of trade down, but you're not kind of trading down to quite the same extent that you maybe would have had to um, previously. So it's that idea that consumers definitely want Are looking, they're really savvy, they're looking for affordable. So we've got a really interesting stat from Um, one of our color cosmetics reports. So two thirds of makeup buyers say they keep an eye out for lower priced alternatives to the products that they already use. So I think that really speaks to this idea that consumers are really savvy. They're going to be researching, they're going to be doing their homework before buying products. So that's something that comes through from an online perspective is that the online channel now makes it so easy to See reviews, see how other people have found products, the experience that they've had and you know, find products that fit your budget, but also that mean that you don't have to compromise on those results that are so important in beauty.
2: Yeah, and I think what you said there, Simon, is the key factor. It's value for money. If, you, if we look outside of, say, the beauty market and sort of the success story of the past financial crisis and the subsequent uh, squeeze on incomes, it was the food discounters. We know that story. We've covered it a lot. But, you know, while they initially got some traction in terms of boosting the quality and the range of, say, their wines, attracting those sort of middle class shoppers into store, what those shoppers found once they got into store was low prices, but at a very high quality. So the likes of Aldi and Lidl did really well in terms of working with small British producers to up that uh, quality and being two of the biggest retailers on the planet they were happy to squeeze margins to get that low prices and what we've seen is what they built during that past financial squeeze has really stead them in good stead coming into this one you know within our data we can see that the biggest shift towards the discounters uh, from 21 to 22 was around those middle middle class uh, higher um, earners who knew from past experience what it meant to shop with the discounters what that value for money uh, metric made and were very quick to shift back down there so I think that is the key to all of this is that value for money equation and if you can exceed expectations in that area you really are going to build longer term loyalty with your customer
1: I think it's worth adding there as well that that doesn't necessarily mean that premium brands can't do well when in this kind of environment so You know, I think there's an array of different tactics that they can embrace to protect themselves. So things like collaborations with lower price brands. We see that a lot in fashion, Um, but we don't see it quite as much in beauty. And I think it's a real missed opportunity to kind of reach those consumers who are looking for lower price points um, without eroding your kind of... Uh, demand for your traditional products, so I think that's a really interesting space that still remains quite untapped. Um, the other thing as well is transparency. So, showcasing you know the research, the development, the clinical trials, all the extra effort that goes into making a premium product, you have to talk to your consumer about that now to justify that higher price point.
0: It's interesting that you both mentioned sort of value for money. Um, and I'm glad, really glad as well, Sam, that you brought in the premium bit there as well, because it's also worth noting as well. Probably now more than ever, when we talk about value of things, it really, you can't just put consumers as an all encompassing term now, can we? It is a sense of for every consumer, there, the value to that consumer is very different. So the personality type or the persona of your consumer becomes a really important thing to know. And obviously every brand will hopefully know their consumer and know that know how they're gonna t- how they're gonna try and shop. But it is good to know from other industries or from other behaviors we've seen in the past. That it's, you know, every consumer is different and each consumer is going to have this sort of individual approach. So it's how we bring that value or the, the types of approaches we can do to bring those that value to the consumer um, that becomes really important. Um, I know that one of the things we saw during, actually during the, the last couple of years of the pandemic as well, we saw a lot of DIY behaviors because consumers literally couldn't go to salons or they couldn't go into stores to buy products. So you're finding your own solutions. And that's also something we've seen in previous economic downturns as well. So I wonder, will we see DIY behaviors reemerge once more um, or continue to reemerge um, with sort of beauty treatments or remedies that can be made at home um, using sort of whether that's inexpensive ingredients or, or, or just um, sort of finding ways to save money? Are those DIY trends going to continue, do you think?
1: So controversial opinion here and I'm always I'm a bit nervous about saying it because as we've seen in kind of previous downturns as you said it's kind of consumers have really embraced that DIY beauty but I think the data so far is pointing to the fact that consumers aren't yet returning there it might be that we need a more prolonged income squeeze for those behaviors to come into effect but at the minute so say for example at-home hair colorants did not do as well as we expected it to in 2022. So those, you know, financial concerns definitely did kick in in 2022. And despite that, we saw a big decline in at-home hair colorants during that year. Part of that is the come down from the pandemic. Um, So we, you know, we were expecting it not to quite match up to the demand when Consumers literally had no alternative but to color their hair at home. They couldn't go into a salon. Um, but actually, I think what's happened is that's where COVID has changed changed the category and changed the market. You know, Consumers were forced to embrace DIY during that period. And as a result, they're showing signs that they're quite resistant this time around to embrace those DIY um, behaviors. So I think it'll be interesting. I think the only way that brands could probably cut through that and reach consumers if they make it incredibly easy for them to recreate incredibly professional results. And I think that's the only thing that will sway consumers. Um, I think one message that could cut through and I think would would be interesting is actually skincare. So in the past, we've seen kind of, you know, DIY nails, hair, um, all of those. But actually, I think skincare is a bit of an untapped opportunity to so say, I think the number sevens, most recent launch is a good example of that so in the PR and um, media coverage of that launch a lot of the hype was around it being an affordable alternative to Botox so those kind of messages I think would have greater appeal than this idea of kind of recreating some of those other more traditional DIY beauty habits.
0: I like this idea of DIY beauty evolving I also like the fact you brought up a controversial opinion there Sam I actually agree with a lot of it to be fair Um, but just this idea I think of almost too like we almost had too much of a good thing in terms of we were given complete control over DIY and we suddenly realized that actually professional services and there are certain products that you know what we just need like uh, there is there is hope for the beauty industry in terms of we need that professional service in a lot of ways we still prefer that professional service um, going to get your hair colored for example um or just mixing parts also i think there's been a big backlash recently as well from sort of safety guidance that we find over sort of some of these hacks or beauty hacks that you see on tiktok and things like that where it's like well actually that's unsafe to use that product in that way so i think that may well also be the reason that some people are maybe hesitant to look at sort of diy beauty and diy behaviors and going forward so i do wonder um Sort of how much that will be impacted. So really interesting to hear your views on that. So I guess my question for you here is where do dupes come in? Uh, How can sort of uh, the consumer navigate that world of dupes and find affordable alternatives? But also what competitive strategies can we as brands or, or as companies, what can we see them do as well and play in this space? So I think
2: the role of dupes um, that we see most high profile in the retail sector is obviously in food and drink and in particular what the likes of Aldi and Lidl have done um, over the years in terms of, shall we say, lovingly recreate some successful products at other retailers. We've all seen uh, sort of the uh, highly public interactions between the likes of Aldi and Lidl and M&S, a lot of Caterpillar-based hijinks. And I think you know, from a retailer that has those products or is stock- stocking or creating those dupes, what it's saying to consumers is if you are unsure about shopping here, don't be. We are we stock the same products, we have what you need here, but at a lower price point. But for those brands that um, are lovingly recreated by those retailers and brands, I think what it's also a testament to is the strength of that product that you have created. So I think don't be scared of that. Highlight your quality credentials, why you are uh, being copied in the market, your innovation in those areas, and the fact is someone has copied that product because it is successful so use that and create more products in that area which is a very easy thing for me to say sit behind a laptop but you know some of those brands that we often see uh, most commonly recreated are some of the most innovative in the sector and there's a very easy thing to do in the midst of a pandemic or uh, times of economic uncertainty is to not be brave and not to innovate but those that continue to do will continue to um, I tap into consumers. Cons- consumers also want things new. They want things cheap at the moment, but they also want new experiences and they want to find the excitement in a really dark time. So I think, you know, both sides of the market have a strong place to play. And I don't think it's not a trend that's going to go away. And um, yeah, I think consumers are increasingly aware of these brands and able to navigate the landscape.
0: I love your cake-based examples there, Nick, um, as well. But it's definitely something we see a lot of in beauty. And I guess the the does does that sort of same ethos of complementary does that still ring through for you in beauty, Sam? Is that something that you're seeing uh, play out in the same way as what the way Nick was describing?
1: Yeah, I think so. And I think one of the really interesting things that we've seen happen from a beauty perspective is how brands have reacted and responded to this idea of dupes and hacking the system and getting lower priced versions of certain products. So the Inky List is a great example. I can't remember the name of the campaign or the exact initiative, but it offers a service where its customer services representatives will, if you go to them with a, you know, certain premium product and say, I want a lower priced version of this, they will recommend products, I think from within their range, but also from lower price brands generally. So, kind of. So, if they don't have it, they will send you to a different brand. So, I think there's that idea of building the, the tr- trust with the consumer. You know, recognizing that actually consumers might be forced to buy a lower price product. They might not have any option, and I think that speaks to a bigger shift in the fact that actually, from a brand and retailer perspective, you know, every consumer's budget is different, and so the more you are mindful of that, the better. So, thinking about you know a really considered, you know, pricing architecture. What is your entry level? What is your most expensive product within your range and what kind of budgets does that serve? So I think really thinking about that and thinking about the different products that you offer at different price points is really interesting with that. So, you know, things like you know, as if we would go back to this idea of consumers wanting to treat themselves, things like sheet masks are probably one of the most affordable Um, self-care items out there, but they're not necessarily the most sustainable. So really thinking about how you can, you know, nudge consumers towards alternatives, which might be slightly higher in price, but might provide, you know, long-term value. So, you know, encouraging them to buy, you know, not a single-use face mask, encouraging them to buy something different. So really thinking about the idea that consumers will be, A, A, looking for value, but again, just catering to those different budgets and finding different ways to, capture what they're looking for so when they're looking for those really affordable products they might not necessarily always be know exactly what they're looking for to help them find what they want
0: it's interesting what you say there, and you mentioned self-care, which uh, moves me on very nicely to my next question, actually, because at times like this, how can someone incorporate uh, self-care into their routine without breaking the bank? How do we go beyond beauty and provide that emotional boost with sort of personal care products and uh, things like that? I know you also mentioned lipstick effect earlier, but how do, we, how do we see that self-care and emotion come into uh, sort of consumer decisions now as well?
2: Well, I think from my perspective, I think we've got very strong evidence that self-care is more important than ever. Um, you know, over half of consumers within our data say they're now prioritising their physical well-being more than they were a year ago, and just under half, so forty-seven percent, said they are prioritising their mental health more than they were a year again, year ago. And we obviously, you know, that makes sense. We've been through a lot in the last couple of years and and before that as well. So. You know, self-care is really important. Um, the need to look after uh, elements that, that make up self-care varies by age group. And um, what is noticeable in terms of that youngest generation is a real focus on mental health care. Our British Lifestyles report from last year showed that um, that for those under 25, the third most pressing concern for them behind the cost of living crisis, obviously, and their um ability to afford to retire, which is obviously a long way off and probably going to be even further off by the time they get there, uh, was their own mental health. And that's ahead of things that we associate very closely with that group, like climate change, and far ahead of all other ages on that metric. And so... While obviously values higher the agenda, actually self care and physical and mental health are just as high at the moment. So that's a really obvious and key area for all retailers and all brands to play in, but in, particularly in BPC at the moment.
1: Yeah, and I mean from a beauty space, I think there's there's so many options. I think if you you know take a look at things like I think it's really paying attention to the detail within. You know, formulas, packaging, so thinking about the scent of a product. We know that scent plays a huge role in you know our emotional state, and we've seen the kind of the fragrance category really focus in on that. And we've seen you know things like the rise of functional fragrances, so fragrances that can really alter mind state. I think there's definite opportunity to start to build some of those elements elements into other categories so things like body care things like soap bath and shower really thinking about the role that scent plays is a huge opportunity still even now sensory aspects things like cooling and warming sensations you know all there's various different things that you can offer at an affordable price point and you know in some of those categories that are overlooked and tie them more closely to self-care but on top of that if you really want to you know help the consumer to embrace those rituals with minimal cost thinking about the way they apply products can be a really big opportunity so thinking about you know how you massage skincare products in how you you know we've seen various different um tutorials on YouTube around mindful makeup applications so really taking that um, moment in your day to just be really mindful in what you're doing and how you're applying products and take enjoyment out of it. So I think, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, here's all these things that you can buy to make yourself feel better. It can be, these are all the products that you're already using. This is how you can use them to greater effect to get that, you know, that element of self-care and also think about, you know, how, you know, things like packaging, does the product dispense in a way that matches up with you know the claims that brands are making so if a product is supposed to be calming you know the way the way a product dispenses should also be calming so really thinking about you know the devil's in the detail here really thinking about how you can you know tap into those emotions make sure that you get the most out of products and that consumers get the most out of them and also as I say just paying attention to the science that's coming through as well so I mean I love this example and I think it might have been you who told me about it Andrew but the Amor Pacific bath Bot, which essentially creates a personalized bath bomb based on how you're feeling so you know playing with that idea of nostalgia and um fun and enjoyment and kind of taking it to the next level is really interesting
0: yeah I love that actually I love that I, I was actually getting anxious when you said about like having a calming product and then actually just the way it dispenses and I was thinking I was getting anxious then thinking about like a pump that just wouldn't dispense and thinking yeah that would really throw me that would be enough to just completely kill my mood so now I kind of get and I like this idea as well that we're reframing self-care a bit as well like rather than being like let's sell just on self-care actually we can we can sell what we already have what we what already is available but reframe it for the consumer this idea that the functional benefits of the product still standalone, that's fine. But it's actually the, uh, the other stuff, some of the complementary things, whether that's things like I don't know playlists for when you apply the product or meditation, or like you said, with the sensory or the packaging. I think those added elements um, are really interesting and um, to talk about. Um, another sort of added sort of complement as well I guess that you can build into and build value with consumers would also be around uh, sustainability and sort of eco-friendly uh, products as well. Again, how do they fit into this sort of affordable living and affordable beauty environment? Um, is there is there sort of a sustainable or at least a waste minimizing aspect that we will see um, for example solutions to expe- extend the lifespan of certain products to get the most value for money uh, or indeed just moving towards more sustainable alternatives now because they are cheaper to produce?
1: You know, Definitely from a beauty perspective, I think the more you can tie value and sustainability together, I think for the better, for the better for the consumer, for the better for the industry, I think we're seeing that more and more so. I think one interesting thing that's coming through is this idea of streamlined routines. So obviously, in recent years, we've seen consumers in categories like facial skincare really embrace this idea of multi-step routines, so layering lots of different skincare products, And actually what we're starting to see is consumers really question that um, and really starting to look for more multifunctionality. So that obviously has sustainability benefits. The less products we're using, the less waste we're generating. But on top of that, it can have real benefits for results. So I think it's just under two-thirds of women who use skincare struggle to know which products in their routine actually improve their skin. So actually, you know, in – Encouraging consumers to cut back, reduce the number of products that they're using will help them to, you know, determine, you know, which products they actually need, which products they don't. You know, things like multifunctionality, you know, we've, you know, hybrid products have long been a thing in categories like makeup. So that's only going to, demand for those products will be particularly high during times like now, you know, where if you can kind of propose that double-ended value. So really thinking about, you know, how how consumers use products, how they can get, again, get the most out of products, and also thinking about, you know, giving a bit more promise around what that product can do. So we've seen some interesting brands kind of tout, you know, this product will last you three months. That will help you kind of budget as well. That will help you know if you can definitely afford to trade up to that product if you know exactly how long um, that's going to last you if you're using the right amount of that product. So really helping consumers, again, just, you know, help them embrace things like minimalism for the better, for the better for them, for the better for, you know, brand trust. Um, But also, as I say, it's got those dual-ended sustainability benefits.
0: It's interesting there because sustainability is almost without being negative. It's almost a byproduct of whatever's going on. So it's, it's this sense that actually the minimalism is the most important thing because again, we're thinking about saving money or prolonging sort of the lifespan of a product and things like that. Um, rather than obviously at a time of cost of living or looking for affordable products, sustainability may not be the, the first thing in your head when you're shopping for products. You just, you expect it, but it's not something you're actively looking for. Uh, From sort of a wider retail perspective, Nick, do you think um, rather than talking about sustainability, then do you think minimalism in general then is something that we're going to see trend uh, as a positive or is it something that sort of wax and wanes over time with consumers anyway?
2: I think there's sort of two sides to that. I think you're right to say that sort of sustainability goals are directly tied to that and in particular tied to value. We saw it last year. We're continuing to see it now that food waste has risen significantly up the consumer agenda. Now, obviously, there's an element of sustainability and ethical behavior behind that, but the reality is that's because people are wanting to save, they're wanting to uh, waste less. We've seen categories like Frozen really tap into that. We've also seen bigger pack sizes in terms of bulk buying when things are coming in, in terms of promotion on goods that last longer, ambient, household, etc. So I think uh, There's a duality within that. I think consumers are savvy enough to, if they need to buy a small pack size on something because, say, they live alone and, say, they don't get through as much, they will seek that out. But if they are a family unit and they need bigger areas, they will move up and um, buy those bigger pack sizes as well. And I'm not sure how much that plays, and I'd ask that to Sam, in terms of the beauty sector. We obviously see it in some of the more personal care elements in terms of uh, bigger Pack sizes for households, but it's still a very individualistic category in terms of the more BPC uh, and certain elements of personal care.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think there's some interesting things happening from a beauty side of things where inevitably you can provide those long term savings with those larger pack sizes. And we're starting to see more and more brands offer some of their hero products in larger formats to help consumers maximize value from that perspective. But on the reverse side of that, even travel size products can be a way to help consumers manage their budget. If they're not going to use an awful lot of a product or they can't necessarily afford the upfront cost of certain products, they might be willing to buy the travel size version just to get hold of that product. So I think there's interesting space to play into that. I think as well it's also worth paying attention to what's happening from a broader perspective and how consumers are looking to save money across their lifestyles, So things like energy use has come front and center now because of energy bills. And I think that starts to shift habits. So things like reducing the temperature of your shower, reducing, you know, spending less time in the shower to avoid water usage and heating bills. So I think, you know, paying attention to that and really thinking about actually how does that impact the products that they're using? Are those products going to be as effective when consumers are using them in that way and actually do we need to reformulate do we need to really think about what we need to change to adjust to those long-term shifts in behavior that will come into effect now as consumers are thinking about the money that they're spending on energy use but actually those are the shifts that could have a real long-term impact um that brands really need to start paying attention to
0: I mean, you've, you've all, you've already got me questioning lots of different ways that I live my life as well now as well. So, so it's, <laughs> it's interesting to sort of take all those factors, um, into play. And I guess there is so much in this topic to sort of digest if you like. Um, so I guess the, the one big final question I want to ask you, which is probably the hardest to answer is what are the opportunities then for brands and retailers? I mean, are there sort of ones that are there the better strategies or better paths that certain brands or retailers should be going down then? Um, um, if we look at affordable, affordable beauty or affordable retail in this cost of living crisis?
1: Yeah, so I think one thing that I think is a real opportunity, so I spoke about it a little bit earlier in terms of transparency around things like um, showcasing the research and development that goes into products, really showcasing things like clinical trials to prove value. I think one really massive opportunity is to. Utilise that transparency, but go beyond social media because so much of the transparency we see from brands happens online. Mm-hmm. Um, so things like um, the various different brands that have come out and said, "Look, we are we're going to be forced to raise our pri- raise our prices in the next few months. We're giving you advance warning so you can get hold of products now while they're still." Um, at the, right, at the lower price point. A lot of that just happens online. So I think we ran some really interesting research. We did some qualitative research with a panel of um, respondents and we showed respondents some of those social media posts and asked for their opinion on them. And what we found was a few people came back and said, look, this is great. But I never would have known this was happening. So really going that next step and kind of thinking about, you know, how you can bring that transparency through across different channels and different touch points, I think, is a real opportunity to capture and build trust amongst a much broader range of consumers. Because I know, you know, the majority of people are using social media to some extent, but not all consumers are using it as frequently they might not be following these brands. So, again, just thinking about how you can be transparent across the various different touch points is certainly one of the opportunities I think out there.
2: Well, I completely agree, but that also means you've stolen my point. Um, But yeah, my my point (laughs) is going to be around, you know, both for brands and retailers, what's really important during this period is the clarity of message. So if you're attracting consumers trading down, use use this time as an opportunity to to espouse what makes your brand unique, um, Mm -hmm. apart from being simply low cost and to be sure to exceed expectations um around that in terms of uh, building longer term loyalty and if you're in the middle or premium end of the sector um highlight why it's worth paying more for that product and why as a brand or a retailer you're not sacrificing on price to compromise on service or ingredients or how the product's produced um but I think, as we move into the second half of the year and hopefully inflation eases and maybe towards the back end of next year we're also going to start seeing elements of deflation come into the market so all of what we're talking about about being clarity or having clarity in your message will also be true when prices um, hopefully ease and potentially come down a little the first to market with those price cuts um will win and those that are brave and are you know willing to shave margin in the short term to build that longer term benefit will be there. Um, and there should, you know, naturally be some sensitivity about talking why your prices are going up, but there should be no sensitivity around that as they come down. So be uh, vocal um, that those are raising, and for those brands that have been traded down, that's the point to then highlight all the quality elements to keep those consumers there. And for those brands that are trying to reclaim some custom, it's starting to highlight all of those reasons why they're now worth spending a little bit more for again.
1: I wonder if there's the is there an ethical stance brands can take when say when their costs do start to come down. Do you think brands can Say that they're keeping their price the same with the view that they're going to invest in the social, kind of corporate social responsibility side of things. So saying, actually, we're going to, you know, continue to pay our workers more. We're going to continue to, um, you know, ensure our supply chain is transparent. I'm just throwing that out there as a
0: that's an interesting sort of creative way to look at it actually um, yeah it, it, in terms of working both ways and sort of taking advantage of that um, I, I certainly think it's fascinating what you both mentioned there as well about um, obviously transparency being a, a big part of it but also just being honest with your consumer I mean not not to say that for years brands haven't been but it's just that that in in terms of building trust that just becomes really really important I think that's the one thing that I'm noticing more these days uh, particularly during this sort of financial moment we're going through is that building trust and building value. I know that we've, we've spoken a lot about uh, affordable, obviously beauty, probably more focused, but Nick, you've also brought in retail really well into the chat today. Um, and I think it's really important to look at it that we haven't, we've obviously mentioned low cost and, and money, but actually some of the things we've been talking about in terms of just building trust, building those complementary factors to consumers, going beyond the functional benefits of a product to reframe sort of self-care or sustainability um, and just talk to consumers, I think in a much more honest way as well in a much more open way and um, really interesting as well to talk about the fact that um, premium brands and luxury brands can also play quite happily in this space um, and, you know, it almost opens them up to a new, almost a new playing field that they can they can be involved in and consumers are probably going to be interested um, to see what how they play in this space, the collaborations you spoke about earlier, for example. So I think there's a lot um, that we can probably take away from this um, today. So I wanted to just quickly thank you both. Thank you, Sam, and thank you to Nick um, as well for your insights um, on this. So thank you both very much. Thank you. you.
2: It's a great conversation. Thank
0: you very much. See you next time. And also then uh, thank you as well for listening Um, but the conversation doesn't end here Uh, head over to Mintel's LinkedIn and Instagram and let us know what you think we'd love to hear your thoughts on not just affordable beauty but affordable living and affordable retail in general Uh, if you want to know more about Mintel then please visit Mintel.com and sign up to become a member of the free Mintel Spotlight community Uh, and make sure as well that you never miss an episode by subscribing on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts as well to this very podcast that you're listening to now Uh, but all that's left for me to say is again another great big thank you uh, to my two guests uh, Nick and Sam Um, goodbye for now Uh, thank you everyone for listening and we'll catch you next time for another episode of Little Conversation